right, guys, here we go. The Fieldcraft Survival Podcast is about to drop, but before we get to this podcast, we have to recognize our sponsors. At our HQ, anytime that we're running a course, there's Black Rifle Coffee Brewing, and we've got those big, like, I think they're five or 10-pound bags. They're massive. We go through a lot of coffee when we do an event like Go Rigs and Coffee. You're going to have to decide what your favorite flavor is, whether it's just black, our Fieldcraft Endurance Blend, Silence or Smooth, um... There's even one that has a llama on the cover. You guys also figure out which one you like the best. They're ready to drink stuff has 200 milligrams of caffeine in it. My God, when you drink those, it's like a light switch goes on. You can feel like you can do incredible stuff. All right. It's kind of like in the new Batman when Batman takes that like crazy drug and he gets all like that, that energy at the very end. Yeah, it's kind of like that guys go over to blackriflecoffee.com. You can use our coupon code CRAFT15, and that will give you a discount when you check out. I'm not sure what products are definitely going to give you the discount. There are going to be some that aren't applicable. I mean, I know it's expensive as all hell to ship liquids, so the ready-to-drink stuff is not. But try out the code, see what, see what you can get, try to save a little bit of money. Basically, the more you spend, the more you save. And uh, if you ever get a chance to visit Black Rifle Coffee or you're out here visiting us and you're passing through Salt Lake City. It's right off the highway. Go check them out. You might even bump into some of the folks that are all over their social media. Guys, the other company I want to recommend is Sig Sauer. Uh, I've been shooting Sig pistols for quite some time. One of my first Sig pistols was a Sig 226. In my younger years, I had bought like a 226 and a 228. I had them refinished by Robar Guns. Uh, and then I stupidly sold them. If I could go back in time, I would absolutely kick my own ass and say never, ever, ever get rid of those guns, uh, especially with that NP3 finish. It was so awesome. But you can still buy the 226. You can still buy a 228, 229, and every firearm that they've made since, right? If you want to try out something that makes you feel a little bit European, check out that single stack 225. It's about the size of uh, a 228, just slimmer. Um, the 320, incredible platform. I'm a 320 armorer. That was actually the last class I took at the Six Hour Academy. And that gun is so modular. With a flat trigger, full-size frame, full-size slide. Oh my gosh, such a great gun to teach people with. And usually if I'm taking out someone uh, for the first time shooting, I'll give them that gun because it is so forgiving. It's also ridiculously accurate. And now... We've had a chance to play around a little bit with the X10, which is their 10 millimeter. And that's all the millimeters. That thing is insane. It's like 15 rounds of 10 mil. Mother of God. Um, also, if you get a chance, check out their MPX. I have an MPX. I love it. It is uh, 30 rounds, 9 millimeter. I've got the K version. And I'll either run it super shorty with the K or as a K, or I'll put on a Midwest Industries handguard and I'll run my SRD, uh, SIG SRD suppressor underneath the handguard. And it just has like straight diehard vibes. Such a fun gun to shoot. It's the gun that when I bring out friends and I let them try it, it costs me a lot of money because it is such a fast shooting gun. It's got a little Timney trigger on it. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Uh, if you couldn't tell, I geek out when it comes to SIG stuff. So guys, six hour, six hour academy, Black Rifle Coffee, Please, please support our good friends that make this podcast wholly possible. Without further ado, here we go. Hey, what's going on, Sean? What's up, man? Hey, I got Sean Kirkwood on the podcast today. And 
the start point of resilience and this idea of, I don't know, it's called mission resilience, is building your ability to come back from difficult circumstances or challenges you might face in your life because that's what resilience slash mindset is. If if you if you have tactics, whether that's shared experience from somebody or individual tactics that you developed and mitigating stress and composing yourself to get up back on your feet and continue this journey called life, which is crazy, um, that is going to build a more resilient mindset to help you in your survival and the worst case scenario, but also in your life, which is the point of this. So this is the first of the 12 episodes that we're going to do fiscally this year from September to uh, September 2023 focused on this concept. The reason I chose Sean Kirkwood as the first guest of this podcast is one, he is the training director slash academy director of Philcraft Survival, um, but has a very diverse um, military background and experience and has certainly gone through a lot of difficult challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, first, before we get to your life story and kind of the things that you've kind of been through that would benefit everybody, we, we just came up with a very robust training plan for Philcraft Survival. And it's, it's what we think is evolving, the company and our position in training. And you've been managing tr uh, tactical training across the spectrum of Philcraft and all the places that we touch with all the instructors that we have. Um, and now we're shifting, I mean, we're, we're maintaining some of those tactical courses, but we're also now shifting into bugging out, planning courses, uh, workshops like land nav and personal security, um, experience courses like breakout, the continuation of that resilience rendezvous. Why, why do you think that's going to be beneficial for people who are customers of Philcraft or not customers of Philcraft in their training path to, to being better prepared? Well, I think it, it, it comes from diversity of options because, you know, you can't, it's, we always try to design training specifically for one set of people in one set of circumstances, but that's almost impossible to do because everybody's life is different. Me and you have a lot of similarities, uh, but there's a lot of differences too. And I'll, you have to focus your training on the wide spectrum that everybody's life is. Some people live in a city, some people live in the country. You know, some people have uh, different situations in their life that they have to learn how to, how to deal with, whatever that means. It could be, I always say, we have everything in Fieldcraft Survival from canning and jarring to precision rifle. I mean, and everything in between. And I think that's the strength of the company because will precision rifle appeal to everybody? No, because it's not in their daily life. It's not a circumstance that they find themselves needing. But canning and jarring, that that fits. You know, my mom could go to a canning and jarring class. She's not going to go to precision rifle, but it fits their needs. And I think that is important when you develop a holistic training environment that fits into people's lives. Uh, and I think if you think like about training like that as a, as a total package, um, you're going to be better off in the long run and reach more people. The the Biden speech last night is the first time that I've that I've seen a lot of people who were somewhere in between, you call them libertarian, independents, moderates, who are now voicing their concern, who otherwise would not be political, about the fear they have of this administration and, and the politics of it all, yeah. the optics of it all, driving us into 
potential conflict with each other. Uh, with people are calling it a civil, a potential of a civil war. I've never in my life seen more toxicity, more likeliness of the most dangerous course of action come into fruition. Um, as we get closer to an election cycle and things start to shift and change, uh, in your opinion, is that your opinion? And where do you see training and what we are providing providing for the cus customer who might be feeling the same? Yeah, my personal opinion on training uh, is I don't care where you stand on a political spectrum. Um, I think you're responsible for your own resilience and your own preparedness, whatever that is for you. Preparedness for one person could be having a first aid kit in their car. Preparedness for another person may be having a, a vehicle to bug out and go cross country. And neither one of them is wrong. It just depends on what your circumstances is. And neither one of them depends on what side of the aisle you fall on or not. What I don't like uh, with the political environment now is you have the elements on either side of the spectrum, the the let's just fringe. call it 10% yeah. fringe, whatever you want to call it, that are actively trying to be divisive in the country, not looking for common ground, looking looking to start issues to where the average citizen that's in the middle that gets up and goes to work every day or takes care of their families. And we talked a lot about your, you know, your kids this weekend and my family and everything, and that's what I care about. And I care about what the situation in this country does and how it affects me daily which bleeds down into, in, into my training methodology and what I look at for being prepared, resilient, whatever term you want to put on it. I think about my family first, and then I build out from there. And uh, I really don't care where you're at. If you, need, if you want to learn how to be more prepared and stopping the bleed in case you come up on a car accident, I don't care if you're a liberal or conservative, whatever you are, I want to help you, and I'd like you to help me uh, with whatever that preparedness means for you. Uh, that's kind of where I like to stay there. You know, I, there's, there, I, I agree with a lot of things on some side of the spectrum and some things on the other, and I lean more one way than the other, but I don't think you can classify any person politically 100% one way or the other. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a very broad disconnect between um, global geopolitical issues and the man who's trying to wake up and feed his family yeah. and their issues like this, this, like how do you feel about the economics of or, or the optics of political strife between? It's like I'm just trying to feed my family, man. Yeah, I, I'm just trying to spend time with my family. I just want to live like my best life. Like, you know, we had talked about this whole uh, tactical space and all the things that it's become, which we've seen since the origins of it, because we've been involved in the military side of it for so long, and seeing what it's always been destined to become which is currently you can't do anything for any kind of positive because there's always going to be a voice of negativity and toxicity that kind of drags you down and it's like at the end of the day getting back to your family getting back to your individual preparedness and self-reliance seems like the easy answer to get back to yeah i agree i i just think you get out there and you know, the uh, training world, tactical or, or otherwise, is a market. It's like any market. And I think if you're in this space, uh, be it first aid, firearms, mountain climb, I don't care what you're teaching, I think you, you owe it to your customers to be as positive as possible. Um, I would never go out there to another tactical company that's training and, and make negative comments on them. They're doing their thing. They're doing what they think is right. I really don't like when... Uh, when you hear, well, there's only one way to do this and only one way to do that. 
you know, I heard that my whole military career growing up. There's only one way to do it, or you were gonna get you were gonna get blown in half if you did that. And then, you know, come to find out, a lot of that was just nonsense. And a lot of it, we were doing things the wrong way. Making stuff up as we Making went. Making stuff up yeah. as we went. And then somebody's personal ego got in the way and decided to, they decided that they had to be the authority on that because they were in a position of authority and people listened to them. And that became the thing. It became a schoolism. You know, I, I say it all the time with like CQB or anything else in, in the Army schoolhouse. We did a lot of things for years that made absolutely no sense. But at the time, that was the only way you could do it or you were going to die. And I think the failure of people to evolve, the failure of people to be original in the way they think about things, um, it's a detriment to whatever you're doing in life. I don't care if you're, if you're selling hot dogs on the corner. If you don't evolve, somebody else is going to take your business from you. And if you don't give your customer a positive experience, um, somebody's gonna, they're not going to come back. Um, and if, you have, if you're a negative person and your whole business model is basically trashing everyone else, um, I just think that's not sustainable because uh, there's, there's been a lot of people before us. There's going to be a lot of people after us. And do I think everything we teach is absolutely 100% the only way to do it? Absolutely not. I would recommend that you run away from anybody in the training world that tells you this is the only way you can do it because they're wrong. There's multiple ways to do things. There's principles that you need to follow. There's a pathway that we think is best from our perspective, but it may not be best for you. Uh, and it may not work best for you. You know, I could tell a, a somebody, a, a female that needs to lock her side to the rear before she loads the magazine and her weapon. That's the proper way to do it, according to me. But what if I can't engage the slide lock with my thumb because I don't have the strength or, or my hands are too small? Am I telling you that you're wrong because you do it another way or you load the mag and then rack the round in? Is that completely 100% wrong? You're going to die if you do that? No. It fits your what you need to do. You know what the principle is. Put the bullet in the chamber. Make sure it happens right in a safe way, the best way that works for you. And I think people get stuck in their own head too much, and they fail to look at things from the customer perspective and, uh, and the reality of there is no one way for anything. Yeah, and that's, that's how you adapt at war and win versus uh, breed convention and die. Yeah. I mean, a lot, a lot of people who have bred convention historically, uh, whether as individuals in business or um, war fighters in war have failed because of that mindset, um, not not wanting to adapt, not wanting to open their mind to new ideas, and and you had a great you had some great examples, you know Sean Kirkwood uh, ran our schoolhouse range thirty seven. What is what is Sephardic and Sodic for people who who don't know what that is or range thirty seven period? So range thirty seven houses. The main schools they house there are the sniper course and the close quarter battle course. Uh, Special Forces calls it Sephardic, really long, obnoxious name, um, but it's an acronym. Uh, but it, it's basically the CQB course. And it was, it was created to fulfill a requirement for each group to have one uh, commanders in extremist force. It's changed names now, it, it, crisis response force. I don't even know where it's at now. But yeah. It was a direct action company within each Special Forces group uh, that would uh, the ground the combatant commander would control their deployment and how they were used in a, in a specific battle space. I was a member of fifth group's version of it. You were a member of you know third group's version of it. So they train all the CQB so and and sniper skills there at the schoolhouse. They also have a uh, an advanced breaching course that they run there. They have some sensitive site exploitation courses and various other intermittent courses that they run at that same facility. It's like a 150 acre live fire facility. 
um, right there on Fort Bragg. It's in its own compound. It's great. It's like Disneyland for for all things, you know, shooting and blowing things up. It's an awesome place to work. Um, but it's where all the training for special forces um, and then Rangers and Delta guys also go through the sniper course there um, periodically. So it, it's just a, a one-stop shop for all things CQB and sniper within U.S. Special Forces. And you ran – did you ran that schoolhouse? I ran the sniper course for two years. I, I, I When my time was up at fifth group, my team sergeant time was done, um, I wanted to go back to the schoolhouse because I had been in a lot of combat. Um, my next – my next job would have been a first sergeant administrative. And although I, that's important and I wanted to do that too, I felt a need to go back to the, to the schoolhouse and help train the guys that were coming up and going to combat. Cause the war was still going on. This was 2008. So there were still people going down range. This was still something that needed to be out there. Um, so I volunteered. I went back there. Um, they ended up slotting me in the sniper course and I ran the sniper course for two years. Um, and then, um, I was getting ready to actually retire. I decided I was going to retire. I had some, I wanted to be home with the family more bottom line is I decided to retire and the slot opened up to take over uh, duties as the company sergeant major there for my last year in. And uh, the company sergeant major at the time, um, um, Conrad Fer uh, Fernandez, he's great dude. Um, uh, he passed away due to cancer, but he's great mentor of mine, seventh group guy, just solid. Um, he went to the group, saw major and said hey man sean's the guy to take over while we're in the interim here um so i took over for the last year and then i retired um greatest job ever i mean barrel-chested freedom fighters warriors just coming in eating chow going and training eating chow sleeping and doing it all again the next day it's about as pure as you can get out there and the instructors and the cadre even down to the guys who the engineer committee out there who rebuilds all the targets Top-notch, 100% across the board. Best, one of the best jobs ever. Yeah. Uh, um, so when I, I went through both of those uh, training courses and guys who are members of the CRIF or CIF or whatever you want to call it, that it exists, exists now, um, that, that was where you saw a lot of training methodology. But you had uh, more experiences after that in becoming – uh, both a contractor on the breaching side, but also a contractor on the the survival school side, right? Yeah, I uh, once I got out of the army, I went and did overseas contractor for a couple years with the Asymmetric Warfare Group. Um, but again, I I kind of I jumped out of the deployment cycle, and then I got right back into it contracting. And you know, again, the family the family was became paramount to me, and I, so I decided I want to I want to go back to the schoolhouse and train. So ended up working as a leadership instructor course manager for the captain's career course which is like the basic um basic level of our soft education army soft education for officers uh did that for a couple years that's uh, a part of the q course right it's part of the q course they go to selection the officers do and then once they get selected for either special forces civil affairs or psyops before they go to their qualification course which is where they learn their skill um there there's a, a career course which is basically a leadership course you know how to be a better leader uh I'm, i did an operations job there and i taught a lot of the leadership blocks from an nco perspective i was like the only nco there the rest of the guys were former officers i think except for one instructor um did that for a little while um then i went up to uh u.s army special operations command and i wrote all the i dealt with all the weapon requirements for all of uh USASOC elements rangers sf um you know, CAG, all, all the different units that had weapons, all the weapon requirements, 
the testing, the funding, the fielding, the, you know, getting the designs done and whatever the requirements, all that was done through that shop. Um, did that for a couple of years, way too much cubicle time for me. Uh, I was going nuts in there like a rat in a maze. Um, great job. Uh, made a lot of impact up there as far as weapon systems and ammunition that got put into the force while I was there uh, in concert with a lot of other guys like Kevin Owens and Terry Gower and people like that. Um, and then a job opening came up at SEER, uh, and I really miss training. I'm kind of a training guy, enjoy training. I think that's the key. Um, so when that job opened up and uh, I applied, not really thinking I'd get it because I hadn't worked at SEER before. I had went to the SEER course, but I hadn't worked there. Um, went and interviewed, and uh, they wanted a fresh set of eyes on the SEER course. Kind of brings us to what we're talking about now is there, there was a, a lack of evolution in the SEER course for a while. Um, just, I don't think it's out of anything negative. Like people are trying to be stuck in a certain place, but training a lot of times is like people go back to what they know. And a lot of times they go back to, well, this was the course when I went through, mm -hmm. um, and I want to keep it there. They don't evolve instead of evolving. And I really don't think it's from a negative place. I think people just, they want to be a subject matter. It's your expert. default. Yeah. It's your default. You're comfortable and you stay there. And then one day you wake up and you know, you're working in a museum, you know, and you don't even realize it. It's like, you know, turning up the heat on a pot of boiling water. Over time, you start, you get used to it, and pretty soon it's, you're just outdated. Um, but it was a great job. I, I handled all the resistance training. So they have a resistance academics where you teach people if they ever get rolled up, how to, uh, you're getting interrogated, what you can do, what you can't do, how you should act, how you should do things. Um, and then there was a another part of it, which was a resistance exercise where, you're captured and you're in a, in a simulated environment where you have to deal with being a prisoner of war. Um, so I oversaw both of those, uh, did that for a couple of years and then, um, a job at range 37 opened up again. And what was funny is one of my, uh, former staff sergeants, when I was, a, I was a team sergeant on my last trip in Iraq, he came to my team. He was now an E eight out there and they were talking about who could take this advanced breaching course job throwing names around and my name came up so they started looking who had my number and they just called me I was on vacation actually and he called me and said hey we got this job opening up do you want it or would you want to come out and apply for it and I was like yeah let me come out so I went out there and I took that job for a couple years um which is the lead breaching civilian for my title was master breacher um so mostly what I did was they had a uh advanced breaching course for for bigger targets uh harder targets than your average residential commercial door frames and things like that. It was a, it was a harder target breaching course. Um, some of the topic, you know, the, the purpose of it, I can't really go into, but it's not that it's super secret, but it just doesn't need to come out. Um, but it was advanced breaching techniques. And the other stuff was, uh, I would help out where I could with the CQB course. They had a great program and their own master breacher, but I would dip in every so often and try to be part of that. But that was, most of mine was doing the heavy breaching. Um, so did that for a couple of years and I uh, really enjoyed the job. Uh, it was a great job. Uh, and then the COVID mandate kind of came out. Uh, I just, I got to a point where I was like, I'm not, not that I'm against the vax. I'm not an anti-vax person, but I was just like, I'm not going to take a shot that I don't really want to take. But that became, I was going to get disciplined and I had to, yeah. to stay in the job. Then you I, become anti-vaxxer just because you're like, yeah, I, was, I don't want this stuff in me. I was like, I, I, I agree with it for some people, but I don't think anybody should force me to get something like that. So 
it came to, you know, their rules were their rules, and I don't fault them for it. It was, it was the job. The government said this is the standard, and I said, well, I'm, 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 I'm leaving. And then, you know, I was good friends with Kevin for years and friends with you for years, and this kind of came about at the right time, and you offered me a, a job, and I was like, yeah, I'll come over. Why not? But in the government my whole life, this is a good way for me to not be in the government and still do what I love, which is training. Yeah, it's been, it's been awesome so far. And um, a lot of people don't understand a lot of the things that we do are deliberate, very strategic on how we want to evolve our customer base. And one of the things that we talked about is because of this situation, the economic situation, which is a travesty because it seems politically led it, and politically preventable, where we're giving you know two hundred trillion or two hundred billion dollars of paying for people's college owed tuition um, and clearing them of debt, which some economic uh, uh, economists say it does very well for bringing money money back into the economy. But other people are like, well, how do we pay for again two hundred billion dollars when we just did forty billion in Ukraine? And mm-hmm. people. Um, whether they realize it or not, are living in a recession and they're seeing the effects of that recession in their own back pocket. So yeah. the, the the supply chain, I mean, I, I try to get my Dodge Ram fixed and parts for my Dodge Ram are impossible yeah. to get right now because there's a nationwide wide shortage on specific parts, especially that involve circuit boards or circuitry. Absolutely. Um, lithium batteries, the list goes on. And I think people feel that I, I, f- I feel that in different ways, both as an entrepreneur running uh, Philcraft Survival, but also in my personal life. And and the bottom line is we have to adapt, especially if we want to continue to train the bulk of America. Like our yeah. our audience is not the tactical gunfighter who wears the two A hat or the you know the the libertarian who wants to uh, exercise his constitutional rights. It's it's everybody. It's the soccer mom, yeah. the family preparedness um, family. Um, it's the the guy who wants to shoot on the weekends and the guy who takes it very seriously and takes all the tactical courses. It's all those in between. Yeah. So you guys came up with a strategy to reduce costs. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, we just saw the writing on the wall with the economy going down. And, and you know, honestly, training is uh, as, as much as it's a want to have. It, it's it's not food. It's not you know, it's not housing, it's not water at this point, you know, yeah, everybody should have training and there's lots of options to do it. But if the cost is so high that the average person can't afford it, um, you know, we need to bring that cost down as much as we can. Yeah, we're still a business and we still need to make a profit because you can't do things for free. The instructors that are out there on the range, they're not doing it for free. They're great instructors and great people need to get paid. So you have to figure out a way that you can meet your customers needs, um, meet your employees needs, and still get out the training to the widest customer base that you possibly can. You know, me and Kevin bat around the, the comments like, you know, I believe in real training for real people in real situations. You know, you can go into fantasy land a lot, and, 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 but the real person is, everybody has their own version of what the real person is. But the real person to me is, you know, 35 to 55, got a couple of kids, works, married, you know, has a normal life. They don't do this full time. They're not, it's a hobby. And they want to train as much as they can, but they might not have $700 of disposable income to come to a training course. Ammo is high. Just a shooting course, the cost of ammo is through the roof. Travel, travel's up like 50%. So if I want to fly anywhere, you know, I'm doubling my price. So it could be a, a high-cost weekend for them just to come to shoot for two days. 
So the only thing we can control there is the cost that we charge for the course. So basically it's, it's putting our profit at the lowest possible level that we can do to still function, still get the instructors out there training. Cause again, these instructors, their income, part of their income is their job to feed their families is to, is a, as trainers. Um, that's their job. So we're trying to thread the needle with that. And we made a deliberate decision to, to drop our profit margin down and, um, ensure that we were reaching the widest audience and understanding that we're all going through this kind of recession, um, high cost of everything, inflationary period. We're all in it together. Uh, no matter where your income level is, everybody's feeling it. I, I, um, a lot of people don't know the size and scope of Phil Craft and how many people we affect and how many people we train. I mean, I hear all the time, like, well, Mike, you know, you, you know, your, your sphere of influence is so small compared to, and I'm like, people think, some people think that I am the trainer for Phil Craft, but some people don't, don't realize the extent of training that you guys conduct to include law enforcement, Bortac. Yeah. I mean, I think Matt, Matt's, yeah are teaching shield training right now, right? Yeah, we have uh, two instructors tomorrow, uh, Matt Shea and Matt Vandy, that are going out to teach uh, shield training to uh, Bortac. Uh, you know, and, and, that, and honestly, uh, that, you know, that training too is free training. That came from a direct message to you from one of the people involved in Uvalde that not on site, but one of the supervisors for one of the people that was and said, hey, man, we need work on shields. Do you have anybody that can work shields? And we do. The two guys that I'm sending out there. That have been in officer-involved shootings. Officer-involved shooting from behind shields. They are very experienced in that. Um, and, you know, they're going out there to train that. And I, I'm very, you know, I have a lot of experience in my background in SF like you do. One thing I don't know about is shields. I never used them. Me either. So, therefore, am I going to go out there and give you guys shield training? Mm. No, I'm not because I am less experienced than any police officer is because I never even used them anywhere. So, but that's the good thing about our instructor base is these two guys that are going out there are subject matter experts. Um, they have a great resumes and, and they're just really good dudes. They're really good guys. They're really good people. They're really good family men. Um, and they're going out there and we're going to, in this environment, we're just going to, you called me and just said, Sean, get this done because it's important to you and it's important to me because it's law enforcement. They're out there every day. They're hanging it out there. They're doing what they can in the environment that they're in and they have a tough job. And if we can help that at all, we're gonna, yeah. I'm gonna. Yeah, you for know. sure. Um, we're training, uh, you know, we went out to Wyoming and we trained to Wyoming at the Wyoming Law Enforcement Academy. Their officers are out there on their own singleton in the middle of Wyoming, you know. Um, one officer, no, nobody around them, they wanted to learn how to shoot and fight from and around a vehicle because that's, that's all they have. So we went out there and ran a two day course for them on vehicle dynamics. Um, went out there and did that. I did that with uh, Matt Shea. Uh, we went out there and did that. Um, so we're always in with law enforcement and the breadth of the people that we try to train from your average citizen. Mighty Oaks Foundation, there's another one. They're a charitable ministry type organization that goes over to Ukraine and other places in, in, the, in the world and does uh, ministry and gives supplies and tries to improve the resilience of people going through hard times. We're giving them some navigation training, some medical training, some communications training, some driver training. We're doing that next week. So all these different people are part of the field craft training sphere, and, and, and uh, that just makes us a better company. And, and I think it speaks a lot to the way the company has grown from 
you know, a lot of people don't understand that you ground at this, you know, for years going to ranges. You're not an overnight success at doing this. You've been out there training, 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 um, and you came up with a formula that worked. Well, that's now not only just expanded from the citizen, but it's expanded to organizations that it's really hard to, to have that, you know, training the soccer mom on this end all the way to a Bortac agent on this end from the same company. To me, that's amazing. And that's honestly why I work here. I mean, uh, there's not another company, there's not another tactical company that I ever would have left a secure government job teaching explosive breaching, which is like a dream job for anybody with my background um, to come work with because the mission is so varied and dynamic and diverse. And uh, there's so much potential there that it was a no-brainer to come over and, and, and be part of it. You you, uh, you have a profound military experience. You you were a fifth group guy. Um, you were in the infantry. You did the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, you you get you're a Silver Star recipient uh, in a massive gunfight. You've been shot in combat. A, a whole series of experiences that like, give you a resume that allow you to do stuff like the training director and, and manage training for Phil Craft and that full spectrum you're you're describing. But also, it's done something profoundly to you as an individual both in your military career, going through those experiences at the time, and then coming out on top, but also throughout your life, which is this building and insulating um, your resilience and making you more malleable and adapting to, to conflict, to difficult circumstance. Yeah, absolutely. What, what, talk to me about some of the pinnacle moments in your military career that you think kind of set you up for success in, in the challenge that you faced and getting through it and benefiting you in the, in the future? One of the big ones for me was I, I spent like nine years in the infantry, um, joined the army. I always wanted to do, you know, really high speed things. Like when I was a kid, showed you a picture yesterday of me standing in front of a flag with a green beret on 16 at 16 years old with a rifle in my hand and look like a little, nowadays I'd probably be my parents domestic would be in terrorist. jail. I'd be a domestic terrorist, but I literally had a green beret with a fifth group flash. I sewed on myself because I was so interested in the military. I OG wanted, greens, too. Yeah, I had OG 107s on old schools. But, you know, I was I was loving it. I always wanted to serve a purpose higher than myself. So um, when I joined the Army, I got in the Army, and then I got into the infantry, and I loved the infantry, and it, it was it kind of fit me. I enjoyed it. I liked, the, I liked the if you just do good work and you work hard, you're going to get ahead. But the decisive point for me was I got to the point where I started to hate it. I, I got to the point where... I was just, you know, it wasn't during time of war. It was before the GWAT kicked off. And uh, I was just real, getting real frustrated. And, um, you know, I was married, and I kept making excuses for not. I wanted to go SF the whole time, and I kept making excuses because at the time, SF was gone more than anybody. They were the only people that would go away for six months a year. Nobody else yeah, did. Yeah, J-sets. And, yeah, yeah, even without war, you're gone at least six months a yeah, year. training or doing something Training overseas. or oh, whatever. Uh so finally, one of the decisive points where I didn't know what the end result was going to be because I was really, I was we didn't have kids at the time, but I was worried about my marriage because I was like, you know, um, it, it was just going to be, you know, tough on a marriage. And uh, But I, one of the decisive points, I was like, I bottom line, I cannot do this. I can't be in this place for the rest of my life. I can't, I don't have a, it's going to go bad if I stay here in what I'm doing now. Even though I was successful, I was doing well, no issues. Um, I had to make a personal decision there to either, improve your situation or just deal with it and uh made a decision to go sf best one of the best decisions i ever made it you know honestly it 
we talked about, you know, I had a great career in SF. I was surrounded by a lot of great people. Um, but it made me make that call to go ahead and make that decision and just work it out, not be afraid of the circumstances and understand that I was going to, I was going to work it out. Um, from a military perspective, I think that was a mindset for me because everybody I was around just would grind it out in the infantry for 20 years. And they'd end up grumpy and old at 20 years and couldn't wait to get out and broken. And I chose that different path and and it, it did well for me. Um, and it gave me a, a, a new head of steam and more resilience moving through the rest of my career. And then once I, once I was, after my career was over or toward the end, I, uh, when I came to take over range 37 that we talked about earlier, you know, me and my wife decided not to have kids. So she was working and I was an SF guy. We made a conscious decision like, Hey, if I'm not going to be a, a dad that's gone 10 months a year, if we're going to have kids. And she's like, well, I got this career going. We're like, Hey, we're just not going to have kids. We're just not going to do it. So I said, okay. So moving along through life, I decided to go leave fifth group and, and come to SWIC. And uh, the opportunity came up to adopt my nieces and nephews. So I'm 40 years old, had made decisions to have no kids. And we went from zero kids to three kids. Boom. Just like that. Overnight. Overnight. And uh, literally we were Googling how to be parents because we didn't know. We never wow. even thought about it. I mean, yeah. I, I didn't know. We didn't go through baby time or yeah. had no idea. And how old were they at the time? Pretty well, old? Well, we, we got Kevin and, and Lainey first, and they were four and five. Oh, wow. And then within a year, Rachel was born. Because while we had the first two, the other, you know, mom had another baby, of course, with all her free time. So we ended up uh, adopting Rachel after that. Or, or So we went from, we had two kids for a year, and then the third, Rachel came All over. very young. So you're yeah. propelled into. Yeah, we were just like thrown off of a cliff into the abyss of parenthood. And uh, that was literally everything I've done in my life, um, the hardest thing for me to get through because I had to learn a whole new way of living. And I had to learn, uh, you know, how I had to place that on my priority list because it wasn't on my priority list before to be a dad and to be a parent. Um, and you know how kids, even, even, uh, even if you're married and you decide to have kids, it's a challenge for a marriage too. And just going through retirement, uh, you know, job change, location change, getting kids, the whole life change that went into that. There was a lot of years, not to mention all the 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 stuff all veterans deal with that been to combat when they're yeah. getting out. Um, all Transitional that kind, issues. All kind of that was one big snowball. Um, but what I loved about it is is uh, me and my wife came together strong. Uh, she's my best friend, and we we just became a – like she's just we're a team. I mean, like one and two man going into rooms. I'm I'm not afraid to do anything because we made it through that. And my kids are the best thing that ever happened to me. And it never would have happened. It was a completely lightning strike for me. Um, never would have predicted it was going to happen. But I can't even imagine my a life, life without, without going through that. And but on top of that, it's given me so much. They have given me in that situation has given me so much confidence that I'm just like, you know, bring it. What, whatever life is going to throw at me, I'm like, sure, let's figure this out. Let's do it. We're going to make it out of it. So so it's not getting shot? No. In, uh, not even a close second. Really? <laughs> not even a close second. I, I hear I hear that from a lot of guys from our background. What, but why do you think that is? I mean, why why is it? We, we talked about the simplicity of war. Yeah. People think it's complex. It's like primal. It's, it's very natural for us to kind of fall back into for me, the military and my nine trips to war never felt like work. It always felt no. like I was playing in the woods as a kid 
It's just a different ter- piece of terrain. It felt the same. Well, the purpose was there. Like I, I, I think I was telling you that you were Kevin this last night. I remember, you know, clearly one night flying in on a black hawk with my legs dangling out and it's getting ready to land back after a mission. And I just remember looking at it like it's weird to say, but I was like totally at peace. Like I was in the right spot. You know, I was happy. I was a little bit tired from what happened. You know, it was a, a good mission. Nobody got hurt and all that. And But it, I just remember that sense of purpose, that sense of like I am right where I need to be doing exactly what I need to do. And there is no ambiguity. I know exactly when I wake up tomorrow what I got to do. There, there's, there's no question. My thoughts were clear. I had that purpose driven. Like I knew there was no other goals in life but that. And it was easier for me to focus on it. And what the, the reason I liken, uh, you know, my family stuff after retirement to that was I think once that was out of my life, like I wasn't deploying anymore. Part of my issue was, was not having that sense of clear purpose. And it took me a while to figure it out. But once I figured out my new clear purpose was my family and my kids 100% every day, no matter what else, uh, to include my wife, because my wife took second place a lot of times to work. Um, Once I kind of figured out that that all became one and that was my new focus, it's like the light bulb kind of went on again. And I had that purpose. It was really easy for me to just dive in when I was fighting it, when I was like, no, 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 this is a, you know, and I didn't really know how to categorize that in my own head. It almost gave me the same feeling, you know, when your kids are running around in the house screaming and yelling and you're sitting there and you're happy and you're like, wow, this is cool. You know, the old, the old me would have went, oh, my God, how quickly can I get out of this room? But the, new, the me now is like, yeah, this is awesome. I'm going to miss this when this ain't happening. So I think that sense of purpose really is what helped me um, and, and, and gave me uh, that breath of fresh air I needed. The mission changed. The mission changed. It, it was a mission. If you put it in military terms, that was my new mission. And it continues to be my mission. My family is my number one mission. Um, there's, things I'm, there's things I will compromise on. That is not one of them. Interesting. Yeah, the same thing evolved for me and my kids where I never had – like I, I recklessly because I was single for a while as an agency contractor – and, and while going through a post-military transition, it was just like, I don't care what happens to me. Like, I'll do anything, yeah. see me on the most dangerous missions, like, whatever, let's do this, send it. And now all of the focus around me has shifted because now the only thing that matters is my kids. Like, um, what do you mean, Mike? You're not, you're not uh, why aren't you engaged in this internet drama? I have children. Yeah. Like, that's why. Like, What's less important to me in life is the opinions of others. What's more important to me is the opinions of my ch- children. Yeah. And, and so it's easy for me to put down my phone or it's easy for me to turn something off or somebody off. And, and that changes everything. And, it, and I hope, speaking about people who are lost, because I think a lot of these people, especially the toxic nature of people, why they are lost is because they don't know what their mission is. They don't have a purpose. And, and they're insecure in their current position and when you and like you said when you when you discover that the ones you love most who are likely in your same household that you haven't been paying attention to before is your purpose then your priorities shift and they change and it clears it up like even like when i first retired the reason i went contracting uh is because i was still chasing that purpose in that world and I, i wondered why i was making doctor money and miserable 
because the purpose wasn't there. I mean, I got there and I was in the same place. I was carrying a gun. I was wearing body armor. I was getting in firefights. And I just remember sitting there going, what am I doing? I remember one Christmas sitting in a plywood shack on some fob in Afghanistan, watching my kids open Christmas presents on Skype. And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I here? When I was in the military, I, I would have been like, yeah, it's, it's horrible, but I got a mission. I'm with my guys. We're doing this for a reason. But uh, it's not to demean the mission that was going on there. It just wasn't my time to be there anymore. The, the, the 101st Airborne kids I was with, absolutely their time. They should have been there doing what they were doing. That was their mission. But I looked at it like I'm just attaching on to somebody else's mission. And um, I know it's a job I'm supposed to be doing. I got hired to do, but it's not my purpose anymore. I didn't feel that purpose. Mm. And th that was my last trip. I was like, I'm done. That's why, I mean, in our in both of our military experiences and our, our peer group reflect this, um, it feels like it went by so fast. Oh, yeah. It's because That's when you're point. immersed and you're in like a flow state of the only priority, like I like if you ask me, I was married for six years. No. If you ask me anything about marriage, I really don't remember anything yeah. regarding my relationship. And she was a wonderful, my ex, my ex-wife was a wonderful woman, one of the best women I've ever met in my life. And we just were very disconnected because the only, the only, even when she thought I was present, I wasn't because yeah. I was only thinking about when's the next school so I can get the next rotator to get to war. Cause yeah. I knew I was thinking about the next rotation. Yeah. I, I mean, I had, you know, God bless me. We've been married 28 years and I, I'm, my, my famous joke is been married 28 years. It's three different wives, but tw no, most of the stuff guys are divorced three or four times. True. We've been married. I've been married to the same woman my whole life, you know, and uh, she toughed it out. She had it hard. I, I, you don't even think about it when you're deployed that they're watching, you know, Fox News and they're seeing all the stuff that's going yeah. on. And they're alone. And they're alone. And, and they, you know, people are asking them questions. And, you know, the old TVs, if you left them on a channel for too long, they would burn in like a, the ticker on top of Fox News. During the invasion of Iraq, my wife left our TV on so long that it burned in the Fox News ticker on our TV. So whatever channel we would change to, you'd see that ribbon wow. on the bottom of the TV because it never came off of the news because she was always watching it. And, you know, honestly, I look back on it now and it makes me sad because I never even realized it. Yeah. I'd come home and I'd be like, yeah, let's, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's hang out. All right, hey, next one's running. And she was always supportive and always knew that this was what my purpose was, but she was just kind of dealing with it. And, and I feel bad now because I wasn't even really – I was kind of aware of it, but honestly, it just I really wasn't as cognizant of it as I should have been. I think some of that comes with age and experience and time. Uh, but I, I, I recommend that everybody that's in that world right now takes a minute to actually think about it. And it will give you some clarity on if you want your marriage to last and if you want your family to, not even just wives, but kids. Kids feel that burden too. Yeah. And I never had kids during that time. I can't even imagine it. Oh, I can't either, man. Uh, but remember that those kids know things are different they know something's changed they know the rhythm of life isn't the same and uh you got to think about that because yeah. it's going to affect them it's going to affect them in some way and you got the you can direct that and you know again back to resilience is if you want your kids to be resilient and your family to be resilient you got to put the effort in mm. it's like if you get if you get a knee operation and or you know whatever op whatever you get a you know your shoulder fixed you got to do rehab to get that shoulder back to where it needs to be. So when you damage a part of your body or your part of your life, you got to be resilient. You got to do the work to fix it so you can go back to normal. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of us and a lot of people don't ever do that work. They know it's broken, but they just keep running on it. 
Yeah, I do that. I, I I'm yeah. habitually um, cognizant that I've done that many times where I knew I could fix things with just paying attention and focusing and and um, just neglected it. And then looked yeah. back and went, dude, what a, what a piece of crap I was that I yeah. didn't I wasn't willing to do a little bit of work and give a little bit of effort to fix something that could have been easily fixed. And now the damage is too far gone. Yeah. I mean, life will teach you those hard lessons. I remember I'll still, my wife will talk. We laugh about it now, but I remember one time we were talking about having a kid, you know, and uh, she goes, well, what would happen if uh, I was pregnant and I was due and you had to go to Iraq when I was due? And I was like, I'd go to Iraq without even blinking an eye. Wow. And she was like, what? And at the time, to me, it was a no brainer. I I was like, yeah, I don't really want to miss the birth of my kid but i'm not missing an appointment with my guys it, it, it to her it was just like i can't believe you so even foreign. said that out loud yeah but i was like what i'm being truthful but now it feels but foreign. now i look at it and i'm like i can't even believe i said that yeah but at the time it was just yeah you know that was the way my, that was where my head was um so you know that that is you got to be able to see things from that perspective um and i you know just to circle back around the training is or anything you're doing in your life, um, it's got to fit what your circumstance is. You got to decide what makes you more resilient in the training or prepared, whatever you're going to do, and bring it back to what's important to you. And, and be be aware of it. Don't try to do stuff that you're not going to do. If you if you if you, part of your plan isn't to have a gun in your truck, well, don't train to have a gun in your truck. Don't think you have to do that. Find something that fits, that's comfortable for you, that benefits you and your family or your situation, and move down that path. Mm-hmm. Define what that path is and move down it. And don't let other people tell you what's right for you. You know, if you don't, if you want to learn canning and jarring and take a basic pistol class, you're more prepared than the day before you took those classes. True. If you take a stop the bleed class and that's all you do, you are more prepared. True. Let's talk about resilience in a military uh, sense because um, Black Rifle Coffee, we've produced a documentary on your experience in Najaf. Yep. In yep. Najaf, outside of Najaf, where um, you you were awarded the Silver Star for for valor for a eighteen hour gun battle, uh, several Americans were killed, uh, several Iraqis were killed, hellacious gunfight and battle. Um, if if you guys want to see that, it's on Black Rifle Coffee's YouTube channel. Uh, has millions of views, um, a lot of comments and feedback. You. In that circumstance, because it's referenceable for people, this is which is why we don't have to go down the rabbit hole on it. If 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 you if you want to watch it, please, or uh, we'll even include the link below. But I'm interested in the feeling that you had at the time when everything was falling apart, and you were you know get you got shot, and you're like working through all these difficult things. How did you keep your wits about you and stay focused? Were there tactics? Were there specific things that you remember thinking? Um, did you ever think you were going to die? Like, how did you work through that and be, become resilient in the moment to to survive? Because essentially, you sur- survive because yeah. of that. The big, the biggest thing I just I remember is just it was a reaction right at the beginning uh, with me and all the guys because we pulled up on an ODA that got there about five minutes before us and they were in trouble. They were fighting. They were doing great work, doing their best, but we were we were outnumbered and overwhelmed a little bit. It's like one of those things that it's like if somebody comes up and starts punching you in the face, you're just going to react. And I just kind of started reacting. And what, what I 
what I, I'm thankful for is that I'd been in a few situations before that. This was my uh, second to last trip. So I'd been in a little bit of combat. I had, I, you know, it wasn't the first time I was shot at. So I was, I was, I was in a good state um, to where I could think through the problem. But I just knew right off the bat it was big muscle moves. We need to gain fire superiority first thing. I, like we're overwhelmed. I, so I had two minigun trucks. So I just moved them to where they could gain fire superiority. Step so, at a so time. you're going through priorities of work. Yeah, right. One step at a time. One step at a time. Uh, you know, and it was just get fire superiority, identify where the enemy's at, get the team that had wounded guys, get them behind us and get in front of them so we could start doing things. Get on the radio. Get you know, let's get air above us because I knew it was bigger than what we could handle on our own. Um, just working through that, and and like I said in the videos, it's basically just go to work. I mean, you know what to do if you're trained, and I. I was trained, and all my guys were trained. I didn't have to like run around behind my guys and say, "Hey, do this. Hey, do that." You might want. Yeah. You didn't were, have an infantry platoon or squad. You had. Yeah, they were moving. Yeah, the thinkers. Iraqis and the Americans. They were they were doing what they needed to do. Yeah, I had to give guidance here and there about priorities and objectives and where we were going, what we weren't were doing or not doing. But we just all got to work and uh, and started working through it one problem at a time, fixing one thing at a time, um, trying to gain the initiative back trying to do all the things that we've trained on for years. Um, that's really what that was all about. Um, and that's kind of how it unfolded throughout the day. Um, the biggest time I really was worried about getting killed because usually you only worry about getting killed is when, when you have time to think about it. It's usually after a mission or when there's a lull and something like, wow, that was close. Like even like right off the bat when the art in the video, it'll talk about, I had a couple RPGs come in close to me. And, and bracket and blow up near me. Um, I didn't even think about really getting killed then. I was just like, man, that was close, you know, and I mo moved out. Even when I, you know, I got shot in the arm, again, it was it was, it was was not a, a horrible wound. Like, my arm wasn't hanging off. It was just right through, in and out, you know, nothing big. But even then, I wasn't really thinking about dying because I was too busy. I was just too busy about, like, this, there, I'm still getting punched in the face. I need to start doing some more. But later on, when the aircraft got shot down, when the helicopter got shot down, this is Apache. The Apache got shot yeah. down. That when we went, we're going to the crash site. Um, right at the beginning, we linked up with another team that was in our. After we had left and came left, they came into our old position. We linked up with them. There was still a lot of fire going on, but I remember sitting in the truck and grabbing the handle of my up armored truck, and going, "If I get out of this truck, there's a good chance I'm going to get killed." Because I knew there was a helicopter down. I knew it was in front of us. We could see the smoke coming up. I knew we were going in there. And I said, if I get out of this truck right now, there's a good chance I'm going to get killed or, or, or jacked up in some way. And I, I, I had a little pause and thinking about it, and then it just back to work, and I just went out the door. But that's really the only time I can remember during a firefight actually thinking about, man, I might get killed if, when this goes farther. Um, so that was just a little quick you know, five-second pause for me that I went through my head. And I remember thinking, if I get killed, my wife's going to be really pissed at me. <laughs> That's that's who you don't want to piss that's off. That's literally the thought that went in my head. I was like, if I get out of this truck, I might get killed. Lisa's going to be really mad. <laughs> then I got out of the truck. <laughs> well, I, I I think about the the way that you literally survived, and uh, and it leads me back to um, task organizing thoughts that are leading to action that are chronologically benefiting you, and whether it's a principle, whether it's a uh, protocol whether it's a you know a five paragraph op order whatever the template is that's leading to your to your best chances of survival survivability you talked about um, 
uh, dominating uh, fire superiority because you knew if you didn't have fire superiority, you couldn't maneuver or you couldn't get anything yeah. accomplished. You couldn't recover uh, casualties. How, those mental checklists for you, where do those experiences derive from? Is it typically training? Was it previous combat? Was it a combination of it? I think it's a combination. I really, I really do. And I, I think a lot of the, because you know in CQB, like dynamic CQB training, which we did a lot of, you have to prioritize. And it's quick. It's fast. It's got to go. Okay, door. Is it locked? No, it's, it's, it's unlocked. We're going in. If it's locked, we're going to breach. Okay, shotgun, charge. I mean, you move through these things very, very fast. Um, and I think over time, that kind of ingrains and imprints to where you look at situations like that and you're in a calmer place. It's easier for you to transition that um, and think through it. I always found, uh, for me, I always found the higher the stress the situation was, the more clear I could think. I don't know why that is. Uh, I'm not saying I'm, you know, I'm better than anybody else in that. I just know for me, I, I saw things, I never saw things more clear than when I was in, in a firefight. I could, I could really just kind of focus, focus. Everything was very, very clear. Even if I wasn't quite sure exactly what the move was, I, I was clear on my choices. Um, good. And I read a book years ago and I, I it was, it was about desert one is when the, the first in hostages. I don't remember the name of the book. I just remember this part of it, but it was when Delta went to rescue the hostages in Tehran, uh, in Iran back in the seventies, um, 79, I think. And, uh, there was a bunch of, and I don't know how true it is or not. I just thought the quote was funny. But uh, there was a, a Delta operator sleeping on the airplane because they were waiting to take off. They said, hey, we're not going to do it. We don't have enough aircraft. We're taking off. And one of the helicopters had ran into the C-130 and caught it on fire. And so the, the guy was sleeping, uh, waiting to take off like, you know, you'll do. Hey, there's no combat going on. I'm going to rack out. So he's sleeping, but he wakes up and the plane's on fire and the jump door is open. And there's a guy yelling for everybody to get out. So the guy just wakes up and in a stress runs toward the jump door and dives out and goes into a free fall position, goes into you know, arches and goes out the door and lands on the sand in the desert and gets up and runs away from the aircraft. Right. And later on, I guess somebody was asking him, he's like, you know, Joe or whatever his name was. He's like, why did you jump out of the airplane? Like you were skydiving. You didn't have a parachute. He down. thought they were in the air. And he goes, one problem at a time. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, first crap. problem, aircraft's burning. I got to get out of it. Second problem, where's, I don't have a parachute. <laughs> We'll worry about the parachute on the I way I don't out. even remember when, down. I, when I read that book, but it stuck with me for a long time. I think that's first in. It might have been. It's either first in or the guts to try. And again, I don't even know if it was a true story or not, but I remember reading it in a book. And I, I just, Interesting. I, I thought it was hilarious. Just if you, if you put that together with just prioritize. Now, that's an extreme example of prioritization, but that guy in, in his moment was like, I got to get out of this airplane, and I'll figure out everything else after the fact. Um, Do, I think that's where you get to a certain or you can get to that level do, do you do you think what is what is the what is the pinnacle shift in training that you experience where you went from a cherry not a lot of experience to man i'm starting to navigate and figure things out was there a specific training course or training experience i think the biggest um in the infantry when i became squad leader I really felt like I was switched on and I knew all the infantry stuff. I was very, a really solid infantry guy. Um, you know, I was in the regular infantry. I wasn't in the Rangers or anything, but I was in, you know, 82nd, 101st, the unit, you know, the usual suspects. But um, I really felt like I had a really good handle on the infantry stuff. Um, but where I really kind of felt like I was very prepared in the SF world was when we did the invasion of Iraq. We went over to the, 
Jordanian desert. And we basically built a base and trained for like six months before the invasion. They knew the invasion was coming. They put us all over there. And we sat in a desert for six months and trained, literally just trained. No, no nonsense, no online training, no nothing. Just middle of the desert. They had a chow hall. They had this, they had that. And we went out and trained every day. Um, right before the invasion, I, I was really like, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm the best trained. I felt I still, the, to this day, that's the best trained I think I've ever been sequentially running up to something like they, we were prepared. Fifth group did it right for that. A six month train up prior to a known invasion prior crossing going, the border. Prior to, and we were, you know, we were miles from the border, but like literally we trained and when we went to go invade, we packed all our stuff up. We drove for like, I don't remember. I should remember, but I, I feel like it was like 20, like, I don't know, an overnight or drive to our last cover and concealed position before we crossed the border. Like we were, cause we crossed from Jordan. Um, but I felt like right then I was like, I, I got this. Cause we had, we just drilled everything from medics to calling aircraft, to firing everything. your weapon yeah. systems, the command and control, the maneuvering to everything. And, and, and it turned out it, we were, we did a really good, everything went great. You know? Um, so that was a big shift for me in the soft world. Cause before that it was kind of, everything was kind of scattered. Uh, you know, we kind of came together then, but those were the two big instances where I really felt like I had a good handle on everything. Yeah, you're like in, uh, I mean, you're not even, you're not in the batter's box. You're like in a batting cage before getting up to bat. Like yeah. you, you had all the reps yeah. knocked out across the board. Yeah, I really felt like we did everything we could to be the best. There wasn't a possibility for me to be more trained. Yeah. And it was even to the point where if we stayed any longer in training, we would have started degrading because yeah. it was just at that point, it'd been like, all right, we're never going to do this. It's like, I got it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it, it was it was one of those things that just, um, that was one of the a defining point for me with training that that repetition and time and energy you put in is going to mean something. When, when you look at, um, I mean, you've had a lot of military success. You've had a lot of military success. Let's talk about failures, military failures. Yep. Is there any defining moment in combat or through your military experience where something happened and then you were like, holy crap, this sucks, and then you were able to bounce back from that? Uh, the biggest bounce back I think I had, let me think. Um, I remember failing jump master school the first time. Um, went to jump master school. It was a static line jump static master. Static line jump master. Um, failing that just because I, I took it for granted. Good a second. I went to the, uh, it was an MTT, like a mobile training team from the 82nd when I was at Corlers. I went to the first one and, and failed JMPI. And I remember that hit me pretty hard because I hadn't failed a school before. Yeah. And, you know. Did you fail the school or just one JMPI? I failed the whole thing. I mean, yeah. I double, I double bogey and I was out. And yeah, I, had I to failed go, JMPI. I had to go time. again. And, and, you know, being I was a young E5 and, and uh, a sergeant, and I remember that hit me kind of hard, like, you know, oh, man, crap, I failed. Did you have a ranger tab at the time? Yeah, I already had a ranger so, tab. So, yeah, you're. Yeah, so I was. I was. Uh, it's hard. Yeah, I was pissed off, you know, because I went to ranger school, and I, you know, not easy. Ranger school ain't easy on anybody, but I passed everything. I didn't I didn't recycle a phase or yeah. anything. Um, Same. But 6-0 uh, on patrols, not bragging. But anyways. <laughs> I think I failed a patrol. But I, I got another try. Yeah, yeah. The whole leadership. Fold. But you know, even yeah. in ranger school, though, that's that's so that's so. Uh, you you could be the best guy ever and fail a patrol. Hundred percent. School. It, it has yeah. nothing to do with being good or bad. It, yeah. You know, I remember one of the patrols when I was a platoon sergeant, and uh, 
I just got lucky because the RI never came and talked to me. But if they had asked me in the patrol base in a platoon as a platoon sergeant where the objective was, I couldn't have pointed to it. Yeah. Because it was pitch black. So had no lost. idea. Had completely lost control. Yeah. But I just got lucky because the RI, I don't know what happened, but he never even talked to me the whole night. Yeah. And I got to go. Where they give you the pine needle, like, where are we at? Yeah. Where are we going? Like, <laughs> like a, uh, no idea. But, but yeah, that the jump master school thing kind of, it kind of hit me hard. But at that point, I, I was newly married and I was, it was, I was finding it hard to focus on, dividing my time because brand being brand new married and and used to be 100 percent of my focus was military and trying to divide that as a, i'm not blaming that it was just the, i blame the focus i didn't have control of what what was a priority for me at the time and that caused me to do a lot of thinking i ended up going down to benning and going through the regular fort benning jump master school after that the whole thing oh and, and yeah it was awesome because in mtt you don't have to memorize pre-jump right we had to memorize it there because it was a regular army oh. MTT, and then I had to go to Benning and go back through the Fort Benning full-blown, you know, uh, jump match course, mm. which is a fun the worst course, fun and exciting, yeah. horrible course. The, I'd say the Black Cats really enjoy their jobs. They're, they're really good at they it. They take it very seriously. They take that very seriously. I uh, mean, you all you got to say is Black Hat. Yeah, like, that's what they're known for. Yeah, like, get out of my face. They're all over it. But uh, yeah, on that. But uh, you know, I think it's just dealing with that dealing with that failure um but how did you deal with it where was it was it reset reorganize and get back at it yeah reset reorganize get back at it. because i always knew the army was always for me i always knew that's what i wanted to do and i knew i had to that was a school i needed to go to and i wanted to go to and i wanted to you know like a lot of people if i'm going to be involved in something i want to be in charge of it i'd rather be in charge of it at some point than just riding along so i was like well if i'm going to jump on airplanes i'd want to be in charge of it yeah. so i want to be a jump master you know um if I'm going to be in the infantry and be a leader, I want to go to ranger school because that's the leadership school that you're supposed to go to to be in the infantry to be a leader. So I went to ranger school. You know, I mean, when I was in SF, I wasn't that guy that wanted to be an 18 Bravo my whole career or a weapons sergeant. I wanted to be a team sergeant. That was what I wanted to do. I was just doing that so I could get the team sergeant. Um, some guys aren't don't look at it like that, but I did. Um, so uh, I think I've always been like that. If, if, if I fall down and fail at something, I just want to get back after it. Um, you know, and, and figure out the right way to do it. Because if you def if you decide something's important to you and you're going to do it and you fail, I think a lot of people cut away and they just go a different path. They all said, oh, that's not important anymore because I failed. I think that's their ego taking over. Mm -hmm. But, I'm you know, the Army was for me, so I was going to be good at it, whatever that took. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I did. I refocused. I studied harder. I prepared myself, and, and I went back and passed. Mm. You know? Yeah, I, uh, Static Line Jump Master is one of the most – difficult courses in the conventional army yeah. but also for sf guys because we get so laxed at oh, it right yeah. i i went as an sf guy to both static line and free fall jump master and it was hard because it was like i was not in the right mindset yeah where you know being a young trooper you go to eib you go, like you're motivated to go to things and it's like i'm by the end of my career i noticed that i was tired of going to training to be assessed and judged. Yeah. Because every there you went, you're like, okay, we got this gate, which is, you know, a, a way of saying that we have a, a f filter between passing and failing. And you're like, God. Oh, again. Here we go again. Here we go. But yeah. but there, is there something to that? Because constantly you were in that state of training and evolving, but also being assessed, being judged, being being uh, criticized, 
um, and then and then potentially passing or failing. Where you continue to pass, that builds momentum because you're more resilient, more confident in your abilities. Versus you hit a you know hit a wall and you're failing, yeah. and then you have to take a knee, drink water, face out, and then get back up to do it again. I think failure is the best teacher. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm with you. I didn't like being assessed all the time, but I honestly believe that like even when you know the, the Super Bowl and the game time for us is combat or anybody in the military is combat you join the army to go to combat or do your job in a difficult situation for an infantry guy a special forces guy that's an inactive gunfight that's that's your test um you got to be ready for that test because every night's another test like if you think of all the missions you went on and you got in a gunfight and you came out okay that was a test okay you did you did it right you assessed and you won that's the culmination exercise that's the culminate now the next time you go out all the circumstances are different you're being a test again i never looked at it like that until after the fact interesting yeah I mean, like like later after I was done being in gunfights, you don't look at it like that. But I almost think that the constant assessing and testing of yourself is is very important uh, to to build that to build that resilience to know that you got to go out there and you got to know to be, do what you need to do to be the best at whatever your trade is and whatever your craft is. I think that's important to build that resilience in you. Mm. Um, like even another situation, like I remember sitting in selection. Remember the ammo crate carry and selection, mm-hmm. them rope week. grips yeah. on that uh, big ammo crate. I remember sitting down on my bunk at the end of that day and saying, because I could have went back to the 82nd, been a platoon sergeant, and just said, I had them thoughts go through my head sitting on my bunk. And I, I just remember sitting there going, man, I, you start talking yourself into things. You know, when you want to quit something, you got to learn to fight against that. Mm-hmm. You know, we all seen the guy that they twist an ankle and then the next day it turns into, I think I broke my ankle. Oh, my God, I can't feel my toes. And then they go to the medic and it's a sprained ankle, but they still quit. Yeah. You know, they were just looking for an out. Mm-hmm. And you got to fight against it because I think it's everybody's instinct is to go to something that's easier. Mm-hmm. But um, that's not resilience and that's not what's going to make you successful in anything. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so that I think that's important to look at when you're developing your own training methodology and as you go through life when um when you look at the new training protocol of uh, uh, more experience more workshop more focus on uh family preparedness what course are you most excited about well i love breakout yeah breakout's a great tell people a little bit about course. Breakout okay, without break, spoiling it yeah breakout is a scenario based immersive training experience uh you the person the people get put into situations that they're not normally used to dealing with and what's good about the scenario base is as long as you immerse yourself in that scenario you will get so much out of it you'll learn more about yourself than you will anywhere else because experience is the best teacher so once you're immersed in that scenario um you're going to learn a lot about what you can do and what you can't do and what you're capable of it's it's patterned after robin sage which is the culmination exercise for special forces training, but it will be something new and dynamic that I guarantee the people that come to it have never experienced. I love I, breakouts. One of my favorite courses period because of the amount of experts uh, with very diverse backgrounds that are involved in it, but also the ability to, I, I know for me, Ranger school, all these different schools I've been to the most impactful one for me has been Robin Sage because yeah. it's experience based and you're immersed in this world that feels so real. And then and then the actions or inactions is, like you said, an assessment of your actual capability versus uh, things being canned or administratively structured 
where you don't get that full benefit of yeah. that experience. It's like choose your own adventure. I mean, yeah. if you make a decision, like I, I have decision A or decision B, there's no wrong decision. There's just a decision. Yeah. So you make decision B, well, that's going to take you down one path. If you make decision A, well, that's going to take you down a different path. The reactions from the role players and everybody involved is going to be different if you choose A than B. Mm-hmm. And there's no way to prepare for that other than just using your own training and instincts to kind of navigate that. Mm. You know, how do you, how do you, how am I going to navigate this situation? Because it's not like you, oh, they made the right, they made the right decision. Okay. Everything's good now. You have to figure out and navigate that terrain, you know, with, with not only physical terrain, but people, human terrain, you know, the environment, the weather, the, the situation itself, the threats, all that is, is pounding on your senses for the entire time. And it's going to cause you to really think about what you're doing. And you're going to learn about a lot about yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, I just think that's key. Um, I, so I, I really, I really love that class and or that course. And so people aren't confused. It's not about a zombie apocalypse, world's ending kind of course. It's just like Robin Sage for us. It, it's an immersive exercise to test a bunch of individual tasks that you have learned in that immersive environment. Yeah, it's deliberate. This it's is deliberate. not. This it's, is not a hasty. Yeah. Uh, uh, half-assed approach to anything. It's all deliberate. There's always a there's always a task and purpose, and then it all becomes very clear to you once you come out of the scenario. Yeah, yeah. The, the The course is like is I think it's five days long, and we've probably spent ninety days planning it. Yeah, and organizing it and preparing it. So and, awesome. So there's a lot of there's a lot of front side to it. And, you know, honestly, the other one I'm kind of exciting about or excited about is the breakout planning course that we're going to be running. Mm. Um, what I love about it is um, everybody says, yeah, natural disaster or, you know, choose your choose your own drama that you have to get away from. You're going to leave your house for whatever reason. Floods, fires, um, wildfires, earthquake, you know, nuclear meltdown at the reactor down the road, whatever. Civil unrest. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Civil unrest. Yeah. I want to get 400, 500 miles away from my house. A lot of people make that plan and say, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go here. Go rural. I'm going to go rural. Okay, have you planned through that? Okay, let's ask some, let's ask some serious questions. What's your route? Okay, what's your alternate route? Okay, how, how much gas do you have in your vehicle right now? Where are you going to get gas? You know, all these little questions, you know, deliberate planning for an event, because that's an event. I'm going to pick up my family, and I'm going to move them to a location, whatever I've, cho- I've chosen, Okay, what's the, how do you get from point A to point B? And what is the deliberate planning to make sure you do it successfully? Because you're not the only one with that idea. So I have hope, I've hope you've planned it. It's just like planning a combat operation. You know, unlike the movies, we didn't just stand on the ramp of a C-130 and come up with a plan. You go left, you go right, you go down the center, let's go hit this. That's not how it works. You do deliberate planning. All the contingencies that could happen. Okay, here's our primary route. What happens if this is blocked? Well, we're going to here. You know, what do we do now? What do we do if this happens? What do we do if that happens? Um, people don't generally do that. Mm-hmm. I think people think they're prepared and they think they're ready for it, but they're just not. Yeah. Because if you have a... They don't have a detailed plan. If you have a $200,000, you know, Sprinter van jacked up with everything in it and you got a quarter tank of gas in it, you know what your capability is? Yeah. A quarter tank of gas. Yeah. 50 bucks. 50 bucks. That's your capability. So mm-hmm. good job with you. You put 50 bucks of gas in a $200,000 vehicle. Yeah. Now it's a paperweight. You know, very yeah, large it, paperweight. It's just going to be burning on the side of the road. So I think that's going to be a very good class. Um, there's going to be a lot of good points brought up. Like even down to communications. How are you going to communicate? Cell networks down. What are you going to do? How are you going to get? Okay, your GPS isn't working anymore. What are you going to do there? 
you know, how are you going to communicate with family members or whatever? I mean, there's a lot of subjects there that people don't cover. And I think this is going to be a real eye opener for people. You think they both build, I, I know the answer to this, but do you think they both build resilience? Oh yeah. yeah. Resilience is planning. Any resilience you have is planning for you. Don't, you're not just resilient. I wake up in the morning and I'm like, I'm just naturally resilient. You have to make that plan. Okay. Like I know we're old guys now. So I wake up in the morning and I know I better stretch because I'm not going to be able to get around as good if I don't stretch out a little bit. Mm -hmm. I know if I'm going to work out, I need to warm up a little bit and get my muscles loose before I go to the gym or do whatever I'm going to do. It's not like when I was young and I could just jump up and run five miles. You know, it's resilience is a planned thing. You have to make a deliberate plan to be a resilient person, whether it's your mind, your body, your environment, whatever that is. You know, if I'm stressed out all day at work and doing whatever I'm doing for my job and I never let it, I never put it down, eventually I'm going to crash mentally so you have to be like listen from four to six every night we're sitting down as a family and eating dinner all phones on the shelf that's resilience yeah and that's planning it that's not just waiting for it to happen because if you got a busy life with a house full of kids and a family you better plan that it better be an event because there's never going to be a good time to put the phone down and to and to just sit there and stare at each other across the dinner table and maybe play a board game after because everybody's wanting to be on their screen all that is resilience that you got to plan into your own life and think about mm -hmm. it it's like discipline is resilience because the implementation of a plan and de being disciplined through the process is what breeds resilience. Like yeah. you have to be willing to be able to make those hard uh, choices and decisions. Um, last question. Um, if you had one tip to share with the audience on how to become more resilient, what would that be? Go to ranger school. <laughs> yeah, that. I would say be honest with yourself is the number one thing. I think a lot of people, me included, aren't honest with themselves about what they need. Uh, they'll tell themselves that if I just if I just do this more or do this less, I'm going to be resilient. You got to be honest with yourself with what you really need. If you need to sleep ten hours a night, make a plan for sleeping ten hours a night. If that's what your body tells you you need to do, um, if you need to take uh, a mental break from work one day a week, and that's what you need to be good at it. Adjust your life around that. Uh, make your priorities, make a plan, and uh, know what you need to be resilient. Nobody else knows. Everybody could tell you, yeah. hey, if you only get on this workout and drink this drink three times a day, you're going to be resilient. It might work for some people, but it might not work for you. Mm -hmm. you got to decide what that means for you. What does resilience mean for you? And how are you going to get there? It needs to be your plan, but you need to know yourself and be honest with yourself about it. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like Again, a good example of that contracting when I was overseas contracting, I could have stayed doing it for as long as I wanted to do it. But I knew mentally I was not going to be able to stay in that place for very long. It would have crushed me. It would have crushed my family. I knew that. And I, uh, luckily, I was, I was able to be honest with myself about that and made a life change. Because if I wouldn't have, I, I, don't, I wouldn't be where I'm at right and now. And many don't. Many don't many make changes. Don't. Yeah. Many don't. Uh, so I think number one starts with being honest with yourself and make a plan. I like it. Um, guys, below are some notes. We have Resilience Rendezvous coming up where we actually are teaching a class about resilience based on experiences, but based on tactics that you can implement to be more resilient. Cold water, hot water therapy, uh, optimizing your health and wellness, sleep, all of these things that we uh, advocate for. Certainly for me, if I, I, mean, if I didn't own a CBD, CBN company to get better sleep, um, it wouldn't have improved my life. So these things are the tactics and the experiences we're bringing to you this year on top of the training. Like the, the training protocol for us 
is centered around the mission of improving your resilience. So if we teach you a course and it's experience-based, know that that course was designed to make you more uh, figuratively and literally more resilient in your life because resilience is one of the things that makes you best prepared because all the tools, all the training, all the equipment, those are easy things to access, but you have to focus first and foremost on the mindset, which is resilience. So, uh, Sean, thank you for coming on the podcast. It was an awesome no opportunity. Problem. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, always. Um, I'll keep bringing you on till we till you get rid of you. I mean, you can, we have to have you on. I mean, it's part of you're just here anyway. Nice. So sleeping on the couch right across the, behind <laughs> the camera. Um, but it was awesome catching up with Sean and then and then uh, sharing his experiences. We'll continue to bring these episodes. Uh, I believe I'm going to have Kevin Owens in the next episode um, next month. Um, but then I'll continue to reach out to friends, family, and people in our network who have similar-esque experiences that are going to benefit you in all things resilience. Till next time, this is the Phil Krause Survival Channel Mission Resilience. Peace out.